Good evening. Good evening and welcome. I'm Mary Wood for the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. It's my pleasure to welcome those of you who are here in the green room of the Veterans Building here in San Francisco this warm and wonderful Wednesday evening, February 22nd. Welcoming you as well as welcoming those who may be listening to this program at a later date via our website and a podcast. These points of view programs along with the Meet the Artist interviews and lots of other wonderful programming are produced by the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education, directed by Charles Chip McNeil, and our adult programming coordinated by Cecilia Beam. I have a few announcements for you this evening, just some interesting information I know you'll be happy to have. First of all, a reminder, we do have hearing assistance devices if you would like to check one out at the back. Um, also, we have, and I hope you have been able to pick up this wonderful brochure, which outlines the points of view programs upcoming, and also a lot of detail about our annual visiting scholar program. And I want to just call your attention to the events that will take place uh, in uh, mid to late April. Our scholar this season is Beth Genet, uh, a dance history and um, theater history scholar and educator and writer. And her feature area of interest is George Balanchine and popular musical theater and his intersection with that. The things that you can do that will be wonderful, um, there are free lectures, and of course she will be the presenter at our Points of View program, which is in um, April 12th. No, that's not right. Whatever, it's on here somewhere, yes. April 18th. That's the date you want to be here to hear her. Um, but starting with April 12th, that's a Thursday. It's the opening night of our All Balancing program. And the day begins from 12 noon to 1 p.m. at the Commonwealth Club. For a nominal fee, you can hear her lecture there. If you reserve ahead, which you're strongly urged to do, you will get a 30% off coupon for your ticket to that evening's performance. If you don't already have a ticket for that evening's performance. Um, so I, I encourage you to read about that in the, in the brochure here. And then uh, a community lecture, her title is From the Mariinsky to Manhattan, George Balanchine and the Transformation of American Dance. And that's uh, Saturday, April 14th at the ballet building in the dollar room. And reserving ahead, it's free, but reserving ahead is essential because space will be limited. Um, and then On Your Toes, Balanchine on Broadway and in Hollywood, Monday, April 16th from 6 to 7 in the Ballet Building, a screening of On Your Toes, the film that he choreographed. Um, back to the um, Thursday, April 12th, again, the lecture at the Commonwealth Club is at noon, and then with luck, you'll be seeing that performance that evening in the Opera House, which will be opening night of Program 7, the All Balancing Program. So I hope that was comprehensible. I hope you'll look at this brochure and that we'll see you then. 
Just a reminder that these programs are recorded and you can go to our website and catch all the information about programming, about casting. You can see wonderful video and of course download many, many lectures and interviews. This evening, we are focusing on program three, which is another one of our rep programs with works spanning such a wide variety of styles, even though they were all created in this past decade. I, my access to much of dance is through music. And I have always said the wealth of varied music in our repertoire contributes significantly to its impact. This evening, we'll explore this aspect from the point of view of music director Martin West. And so now I'd like to ask Martin to join me here. Thank you, and welcome. Yes, you can sit. I'm sitting. You can okay. sit. Um, by way of introduction, I want to say um, Martin studied mathematics as well as music. And there is sort of conventional wisdom that the two go together. I wonder if that's really true. Um, I don't know. Yeah, well, the, when I was at uh, university, there were a lot of good musicians who studied math, definitely. See I, see, I call it math now. I'm American now. I should call it maths. But, um, um, yeah, I mean, I think it, there is a... Yeah, I, I don't know if it works the other way around. I'm not sure necessarily that musicians are very good at math as a general rule. It's probably they know more about left brain and right brain these days, whatever. Um, Martin began his career in the ballet world with the English National Ballet, where he eventually spent a number of years as principal conductor. He became a part of the San Francisco Ballet family when he was a guest conductor, and then became music director and principal conductor in 2005. So as we converse, we are going to look at the works of Program 3, which is, of course, the music is wonderful, and then we want to <laughs> look down the season and because there's, there's amazing and wonderful and curious and fascinating music always. But before we actually dive into that, I know there are probably people here who still believe that you wake up when the season starts and look at the call board and walk into the theater with a baton and wave it and go home. How I wish. <laughs> But there's a little more to being music director. So what does keep you busy when you're not actually conducting? Well, the, the season does take a lot of uh, organization. Um, the, the, the orchestra only worked from December to May, but uh, in, by November the 1st, we have to have their exact set schedule put out to them, and it can't change. So we have to know exactly when they're going to rehearse, where they're going to rehearse, what they're going to rehearse. And so it has to, we have a lot of planning ahead to make sure that we don't uh, miss anything and we don't over-budget for rehearsals that we don't need and things like that. So um, I do that with my uh, right-hand man, Tracy Davis, who's the orchestral personnel manager and uh, music administrator. But it's very much a team effort. He says, you know, what do you want? 
how much do you need for this? And I'll say that. And he said, well, you can't do that because of this. And we'll all look at the technical schedule because, of course, that makes a big difference. So we don't want to try and have orchestra rehearsals when the dancers are having important rehearsals so I can be there. And so there's all sorts of logistical jigsaws to put in place. Um, and uh, every year we are thrown a curveball by at least one choreographer who will ask for some piece of music which undoubtedly has some problems in organization. And we spend our time scratching our heads working out how to make it work for them. Backing up, before you can do technical planning, you and Helgi have to have had some sort of interaction about what the repertoire is going to be. Yeah, actually, you know, Helgi has a very difficult job because he has, to, uh, he has to please the audience. He has to please his dancers. So he has to make sure that all his repertoire f fit you know, with his dancers, so each dancer gets enough to do and not too much to do. And he has to please the technical director, who you can't just do this ballet and this ballet because it's impossible to take the set down or you can't, whatever, you know, all these problems that you don't even see, you don't even occur to most people, and mo not even me. And then, at the same time, he'll converse with me and saying, is there any problem about the music? Um, and I'll say, well, it's not such a great... Oh, it's fine. There's, usually, it's no problem. Thank goodness. It's, it's really Helgi on that side of things. He has such a good sense of what a good program is that generally the uh, there's not a real problem. Um, I mean, what is it tonight? It's program three. So it's, it's not so bad. But program two, for instance, we had to have we started with Chroma, which was a huge orchestra. Then we had to clear the pit almost, bring in a harpsichord and a piano, and make it right for about twelve, thirteen players. And then we had to clear all that again, and then set up for number nine, which is a totally different orchestra again. So that was a logistical problem, you know. Uh, but in terms of that's easy to solve. It just takes a few men and strong people from the crew to help us out. So. And it takes you saying, hmm, those are going to look great now. You need to be aware of this, and somebody has to figure that out. Yeah, and it's very interesting because we, uh, we will do that here, and we work things out, and then will go on tour, and Helgi, of course, makes up programs to take this ballet and whatever because he likes, he thinks that's good for touring. And then we're set with different problems, you know, because we can't have such a big pit. We can't have the same crew. We can't, and I say, we can't really do that together. So there's so, so many logistical problems before we even get to a program which works. Um, we thought we had the program set about three months ago, and we all budgeted for it. And since I think there's been about four iterations since then. <laughs> So we're still, we're still working on next season. And there have been some hints about what might come down the pike, but... Yeah, is that public? I, there was a press release oh, about it. Oh, great. What are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> Rumor has it oh. that we'll be doing... Oh, Cinderella. Cinderella. Yeah, that's great. That's going to be great. And it's not just any Cinderella. Not just any Cinderella, yeah. It's very exciting with Christopher Wilden. Christopher Wilden. And well, we'll save a, more of a discussion of that for another Wednesday evening. But um, I just have visions of you sort of filing through your brain into your Prokofiev. Yeah, I, we did Cinderella a lot. Files. Actually, yeah. I've done two productions of Cinderella in, in my time. I, we did a lot in, in England with Michael Corder's version. And then I went to National Ballet of Canada um, a couple of years ago now and did the production with uh, mm -hmm. James Kudelka's mm -hmm. production, which mm -hmm. is very different. So I, I love the music. Mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing we haven't done it here for 
I don't, I don't think the orchestra can remember playing it, to be honest. And that means there will something. be some of your older, longer time members will, but it's been a while. Yeah. Well, um, well, as I said, save that for another time. Um, the one thing that um, I know is always of interest, and that is who among the choreographers comes to you for actual musical advice? Do you ever have artistic input in the creative process, not just logistical? Um. Well, Helgi does ask for advice, and I give him loads and loads of suggestions, and he never takes them. <laughs> and uh, most choreographers have a clear idea what they want to do. Uh, something stirs them. I can put stuff on the table, but um, what means something to me doesn't necessarily mean something to... Um, there is a story. I mean, there is actually one piece that finally I've always wanted to do as a ballet. It's happening this season. I'm very excited. We'll talk about that later, maybe. Yes, we will. Um, well, let's take a look. We have um, images, of course, of the works on program three. The music, of course, is wonderful. I thought it was kind of interesting you talk about programming. We ended up with two Tchaikovsky pieces on the same program. Um, pretty different. Yeah, pretty different. Actually, and... Sorry. Oh, that's me. That, yes, we should have I, had that up there all this time. That's very, uh, I wish I looked like that now. Um, yeah, first on the program that you'll see this evening is a trio which was actually a world premiere last season, encore this season, choreographed by uh, our artistic director, Helgi Thomason, to um, a variety, well, pretty much a couple of pieces, right, no, by one Tchaikovsky. Piece. It's just, one piece. I thought there was the another interpolated thing, but no. No, no. no. Um, and it's neoclassical, it's lovely. In fact, to my mind, it's gorgeous. I just love the costumes. Um, this is from the first movement, and this is the extraordinary pas de trois from the second movement. We are looking at Saravan Patton and T. Telemets, and they are joined by uh, Vito Mazzeo. Very dramatic, very different. And we actually have a clip of it that takes us through a couple of the movements, and then I'll ask you to just say something about what it is we're actually listening to. What is that piece of... It's very melodic. It, uh, that is... Uh, Technical difficulties. I don't know what that is. Okay, well, uh, that piece is uh, the Souvenir, Souvenir de Florence, 
by Tchaikovsky. Oh, well. Um, it, was a, it's a, it was a late piece that he wrote uh, just before. It was premiered in 1892, I think, just the year before he died. And uh, 1892, what did I say? Oh, I'm so sorry, 1892. Um, and uh, it is a sunny work. I, I think he must have had a nice holiday. He wrote it for, he was given an honorary doctorate somewhere, and he presented that as, a, as his uh, thank you to the, I forget where it was, I'm sorry. Um, so it was ri- originally written for string six, sextet, six players, two violins, two violas, and two cellos. Uh, but we thought um, it's, it's sometimes done as a string orchestra, and we really felt that in, this, in the opera house, uh, it's just too big a place to have such an intimate group and really, the, the, the piece itself isn't, the, the ballet isn't intimate in that sense. So we've really felt that it'd be uh, good to have that with the strings, the whole string section. I think it sounds fantastic, to be honest. And musically, um, it's, I think if you're familiar with the great Tchaikovsky ballets, Swan Lake and Sleeping Beauty and Nutcracker, and perhaps with the serenade for strings, this Balanchine serenade, um, I just think of that as sunshiny, melodic, tuneful Tchaikovsky. Yeah. It, and it, that's what this that's is. That's basically yeah. what it is, yeah. He, he had, Tchaikovsky had an amazing ability to write very happy music, even though he was sometimes suicidal. Mm-hmm. The best example um, is the, the violin concerto, oh, yes. which he wrote when he was convalescing after his disastrous marriage. You know, Tchaikovsky was gay, and he married this, yeah. basically a, a stupid young girl who didn't satisfy him in any sense whatsoever, uh, intellectually or sexually or anything like that. And he was so upset, he threw himself into the river, hoping to um, catch pneumonia. And he didn't. He just got a very bad cold. And he, he spent, the, uh, spent his time convalescing, writing this incredibly happy violin concerto. Uh, Amazing. Well, we'll get around to it. But um, he definitely had another side to his composition. So, but meanwhile since we've got our technical stuff restored here. Thank you. Um, closing the program is one of the happiest, dare I say goofiest, most charming pieces we've done in a long time. Um, Carnival of the Animals, choreographed by Alexei Ratmansky. This was, as I understand it, his first commission by an American company. And he has since produced ballets for everybody and is all over the world, has directed the Bolshoi Ballet, is choreographer-in-residence at, I think it's American Ballet Theater, um, really has become very, very popular and very successful as a choreographer. So we're very proud that we had one of his early American pieces. Um, But this is the music that has to be the most familiar music, almost, in the world. Uh, If you don't know a lot of the variations, you certainly know the swan. he has taken the dancers and done a couple of things. He's both given them the characteristics that a human would have if the human were animal-like, or he's given them animal characteristics. Does that make sense? And so here's the group that are bird-like, and here's the jellyfish. One of my favorite sections is the, the uh, underwater, the fish section. And then the swan. And he's definitely given it 
his own twist of humor, and the dancers have clearly an outstanding time doing it. This music was written as a joke, as I understand it. Was it was for a party, I think, yeah. Uh, for, for, was it 11 people of mm-hmm. Sanson's friends? He wrote it as a joke. He didn't mean it ever to be heard really in public, except for the swan, uh-huh. which he, uh, he, it was his friend who had uh, the cellist who had the, the, the party. And so he wrote that as a serious piece, and it is obviously a very beautiful piece. Um, but the rest of it, he, he just wrote as a joke, and um, he actually said he was, it was never to be performed again in his lifetime. But it, it was a couple of times he, uh, List made him do it in another party, but basically it was never played. And, but he did say in his will that it, it could be um, uh, published posthumously, and, and it was, of course. And now it's like, why, why would you not want this to be played? But he actually thought, because it was so silly, that, uh, that it would do his reputation harm which I think is hilarious because actually what it shows inside incredible genius of, um, of not just uh, sounds, making the orchestra sound like you know, animals, but uh, he used, took little bits of, of, of operas and he took uh, like the, uh, the tortoise section, the yeah. turtle section, um, is, is a can-can from Offenbach's uh, Orpheus in Wonderworld, but played very, very slowly. Like the, so... And deep, deep. Very yeah. deep. Well, the whole thing, but like you're just going to go to sleep. Yeah. And then the elephant, which is uh, which he t- wrote for the double bass, has this, uh, as a joke, he took um, two pieces. He took um, the, the, the Dance of the, of the Sylphs from uh, Berlioz's Damnation of Faust, which you hear in its original. It's just so light and airy. And he makes a... And our bass section play it hilariously. To, uh, and uh, he took another bit from Midsummer Night's Dream of Mendelssohn, the, the very fast scherzo, and he just slows it down until it becomes grotesque. But, but at the same time, makes a, p- a piece which has itself its own structure and it makes sense. It's, it was incredibly clever. I remember a story about the um, pianists, that there's one section and the animal is the pianist. Yeah, yeah that was on Sanson's joke. So he thought our animals were pin- about the p- pianists for animals. And so it's basically, uh, it, in, that, in the ballet, it's, uh, it's great. It's the guys all having a competition against each other. But um, in the score, it says, um, to be played like a bad student. <laughs> so tonight, if you hear the pianists making wrong notes, you know that they're doing it deliberately. They're not making... They're not making wrong, wrong notes. They're making the right, wrong notes. <laughs> but he, d- he didn't specify how to play it badly. He just said you should play it badly. So there's all sorts of traditions how to play it. Um, but it's basically a whole, load of, it's a whole load of scales, just practicing scales up and down. Uh-huh. It's, right. it's very funny. It is great fun. Well, the centerpiece of the program is the world premiere for this program for this part of the season. And it is by our resident choreographer, Yuri Posakov. He has, again, used music of Tchaikovsky, and man, is this different music. It's totally different, and I was just looking, looking at it. It's written 16 years apart from uh, ah. the souvenir before us. And we do have just a few images, and then I'm really going to just say to Martin, talk, because he has the most amazing things to say and to show us about this piece of music. Uh, it is based on a story, um, Dante, the... Dante's Inferno. Inferno and the um, circles of hell and the love story of Francesca and Paolo and 
they are adulterous, and of course they are murdered, and everybody has committed some sort of sin, and so they're going to hell. And it's, I'm sorry, I'm being a little bit flippant, and it's not. It's really very seriously treated. Um, danced in this cast by um, Maria Kochikova and Joan Boada. Yuri has chosen to um, use visual quotes, <clears throat> and the three men are from a statue by Rodin of the Gates of Hell. <clears throat> and then the women, um, oops, sorry, that's my last picture. Um, medieval or Renaissance courtiers, Greek chorus. Pretty much everything, aren't they? Anything you need them to be as support and just so sculpturally beautiful, astonishing. And um, Yuri chose this piece of music by Tchaikovsky, so tell yeah, it's us. A piece well, it's a piece he's wanted to do quite a long time. Um, it's funny, Francesca is, I think, one of Tchaikovsky's great works, but it's not played very often, it's, uh, and I can't really say why. Um, you know, Tchaikovsky... Huh? Well, it's totally wild. Um, Interesting, we just mentioned Liszt. Sansons uh, was a great friend of Liszt. Liszt was an, an incredibly powerful and important composer, even though nowadays his music isn't played very often. At the time, he was really a revolutionary, and people would, would always had to take notice of what he was doing. And Tchaikovsky didn't really like Liszt music, but even he couldn't escape from the effect of it. So Tchaikovsky used to write... Yeah, I mean, sorry, I've got little... I'm not playing on my phone. I'm actually trying to get some music out. Tchaikovsky used to... You know, he liked writing tunes which had, you know, nice, nice melodies, and usually often made up of scales. Maybe, oh, I'm on the wrong thing. There we go. Is it coming out? Yeah. No. Technology. There we go. You may recognise this. It's a piece we pay once or twice a year. But it, it's just based on the scale. Da -de -da -de -da 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 -da. Here's another one, a nice scale. That's a serenade for strings, you know. Here's another one, very famous tune from his Sixth Symphony. Incredible tunes, but they're just scales. How can that work? And, and yet, in, in um, Francesca, um, he really went to the Lystian um, way, which was to make things very chromatic. And when you make things chrom chromatic, means, it actually means colorful. Uh, and in music, it means using a chromatic scale is when you use all 12 notes of the scale. Usually, a, a normal scale will have eight notes, but a chromatic scale will use all 12. And he, he, he made it his scales particularly amb ambiguous. So maybe I can explain this. Here we go. Maybe this is going to work. Here's an F major scale. But it's just as good as Tchaikovsky. I played that. And here, 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 and here's the same scale with one note added. 
didn't start very well, did it? So, da dee da da dee da dee da da. He added that in, a B, in an F major scale, a B. It doesn't exist in, the B, in F. In fact, so what Tchaikovsky did was added ambiguity, ambiguity to his piece. And the first thing that happens in Francesca is that we're all sent to hell. The cellos, basses, and the bassoons, all the lowest instruments, they send us straight to hell. And the next thing you hear is the, is the brass playing this diminished chord. Diminished chord has no f basis. It can resolve in any way whatsoever. We have no sense of our key. There are no scales. It's very portentous. And then, this is, the, this is right at the beginning. This is even before the curtain comes up. The cellos try and drag themselves out of hell. But they don't get anywhere. All they get to is another diminished chord. So the whole piece is based on this lost feeling. You did, I mean, that's what hell is presumably what it's like. <laughs> And then here comes the scale. Here comes your scale. Um, is this the right one? The scale I just played you the, on the piano, and if you listen carefully, you'll hear the cellos and the, and the trombones all sinking further down into hell, never knowing where they're going to end up. That's the thing. And the violins and the, the higher instruments are trying to pull themselves out. It's extraordinary writing. And again, we just end up in a different world. You know, we just keep further, further down into hell. It's extraordinary. And we never know if it's going to end. That's the amazing thing. So Tchaikovsky just started this whole piece. And within ten, you know, what, what, a minute, you want to kill yourself. It's, 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 uh... <laughs> but then also, Liszt was very... List, the Liszt way was to have uh, sound pictures, the tone poems, they call them, where they would tell a story. Up until, you know, Beethoven, apart from one very major piece, didn't write, he wrote tunes. You know, Mozart just wrote symphonies. They didn't have stories. They were, them, they were pieces of art in themselves. And Liszt was one of the first people who really made, um, you know, music tell a story. And, and Tchaikovsky took this on board. He, he wrote Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet, these overtures. And Francesca was one of these ones. And he had a great way of, of depicting certain things. So one of the things that Dante talks about is the swirling winds, the swirling winds. And this is how Tchaikovsky made it work. Round and round and round and round. Always on this sort of diminished way, never landing anywhere. Going further, higher and higher. And then there's some respite here. Yeah, Mary just said that sounds like the, the fourth act of Swan Lake. Well, that's another way. He doesn't actually use so many diminished chords there, but it's a way of building up, just keep building, so you never know when it's going to end. It's, uh, Tchaikovsky had an incredible way of doing that. So we do finally get. Um, uh, 
some way. Where are we going? Around. Okay. And then there's a big chunk of Allegro, which is uh, uh, fantastic choreography. This is where the uh, where um, Francesca and Paolo first kiss, and all, all hell is let loose, shall I say. <laughs> um, um, but it finally, uh, it all winds down, and we're left with this beautiful tune, which you, if you went to Njegin, you'll recognize. This was actually used in Njegin. That was the, the middle. The first, the outs, The first section was all about hell, and and then obviously Tchaikovsky couldn't just keep doing 25 minutes of hell, so he wanted to depict the love between Francesco and Paolo, and that was the first part of it. The the clownet. I'd like to think of it as as uh, Francesca expressing some love, and it's it's quite a long tune, but it's even it's it's then uh, answered by this extraordinarily beautiful answering phrase, which is probably the longest answering phrase of all time. I'll just play a little bit of it. And one of the reasons I think it's so long is because it, it's f forbidden love, and it never quite reaches its fulfillment. So he always keeps going. Maybe it's to do with because they're in, they're in, in hell. It is eternity. But you never quite get to this feeling of, oh, oh no, it's keep going. You keep going. You keep going. Tchaikovsky uses great ways of, of doing that. Most phrases are in eight-bar phrases, and it'll come to an end. He would have phrases actually come to their climbers halfway through a bar. So you think you're going to come, come to it, and he would keep the phrase going just that two beats longer, and then it'll go longer and longer. The strings have the first um, uh, time of this, of this theme. Let me play. Is this going... Every note, every time we play something, a little higher, almost like a scale, should I say. Where are we going to end up? No, we can't go. Here we go, we're going to end up here? No. Oh, no. Keep going. And again. I think, oh, thank goodness, it's all over. And then he goes, oh, oh no. And, and so on. You see, it goes, it's, it's a very long phase. That's about half of it. It's really, in terms of a, a classical piece of music, it's, it's ridiculously disproportioned. And may, maybe that, that gives you that longing. When's it, you know, finally, can we do, no, it's unforbidden, we can't. Oh, we should, you know, all these sort of things that go on. But the, and then Tchaikovsky, then what happens then is essentially, um, the whole, this is, about a, well, be eight or nine minute section of music, which is full of this beautiful tune. And it's essentially one big pas de deux. You, you've seen it, yeah, obviously you've seen it. So it's an astonish, astonishing pas de deux. I mean, it's incredibly difficult. And I, it was, I always thought they weren't going to make it through because they were, every rehearsal they'd stop because they were so tired. I'm not surprised. But um, finally what happens is, you know, everything culminates 
And I think the genius of, of, of Yuri here was when it finally got to the climax of the whole piece in this bit, they stopped dancing. They just, you just, they, he lets the music speak for themselves. The trombones take over the tune. They play three Fs, which is very, very loud. The orchestra try and compete. And we end up with this amazing... Finally. They played the tune that the strings were playing for. But underneath it and beyond it is everything else you've heard so far. spiral out of control. Oh. We still can't finally find our way. And it keeps going back and then eventually it works its way back. And then in the ballet, at the same time as the Allegro, the, the, the fast music comes back, a uh, husband named called, what's the husband's name? I'm terrible at names. Anyway, the husband, who's played by Taurus, Dimitro, uh, comes in, and then, then the music comes back, and the, the fight happens, and it's just, well, it's just incredible ballet. Oh, yeah. And uh, oh, I hope that gives you some idea of the music. I mean, why does it feel like hell? Because you, never be able, you can never sit down. You can never rest. You never rest in it. It's incredible. You're going to love it. <laughs> really. Thank you. I just, this is why I loved music theory classes. Um, would love to talk about some of the other things that are, Go ahead. because I happen to know that Martin has some other pieces he could play for us and talk about. Um, I'm going to let that just go dark. The things that always fascinate me about a season at San Francisco Ballet is the kind of soup to nuts things that you're thrown. Um, an incredible full orchestra business like this, the small, intimate things, the unusual instrumentation. We were talking about a couple of them that came along this season. Um, uh, yeah, we just had one. Going along with this yeah, yeah. program, program two, uh, Bo, Mark's piece, um, he, he came and uh, it's always interesting to know what Mark's going to do because he has such an incredible encyclopedic knowledge of music. <clears throat> and he said, oh, I would like to do a concerto by Martineau. And I said, oh, great, yeah, what, the oboe concerto? I love the oboe concerto, it's great. He said, no, the harpsichord concerto. <laughs> and I said, I didn't even know there was a harpsichord concerto. <laughs> and not only that, all the harpsichordists I talked to didn't know there's a harpsichord concerto, but <laughs> <laughs> people don't play it. Ah. And so it was, uh, it, was, it was, you know, as always, it's a, a joy to be... Uh, made to discover things about composers you didn't know. And it's a really charming work. It's, uh, we, uh, we, we got in a great uh, harpsichordist from uh, New York, Bradley Moore, uh, who's been playing with us, and it's been a joy to have him. Um, and uh, we have, Mark was very insistent. Mark, this is the extent of his knowledge. He, uh, he knew that these, that piece was not written for an, a normal harpsichord. It was written oh, right. for a very specific 
1920s style harpsichord. When harpsichords came back into fashion, they they started making these big, enormous harpsichords, which uh, which had 15 different sets of strings to make them loud and interesting. So he was insistent that we had to use one of those. Um, so. So that was your challenge well, here, actually, was to go off and well, find a 1920s say, harpsichord. Actually, here it was no problem because the opera have a very good one. Ah. But uh, if and when that piece tours, which undoubtedly it will at some point, um, it's going to add to the difficulties of, um, okay. of planning, shall we say. You know? um, the pieces in the repertoire that return, you know, are sort of known quantities. But this season we have four world premieres, and there are two yet to come. Mm -hmm. Um, Interesting pieces of music for them. Yeah, both very interesting pieces. Um, Ashley Page chose a piece by John Adams, A Guide to Strange Places. It was uh, not one of his best-known works. It was written about 10 years ago, I think. Mm -hmm. And that'll Um, be on Program 6, just if you're keeping track. So, uh, if you, a lot of people know John Adams' work, um, and it's all different, of course, but it has a, um, you know, sort of this usual Adams features, which are very rhythmic drives, very, um, y- if you look at the score, it doesn't look too bad. It's all written in 4-4 four, four or something like that, I know, so it's all like that. But actually, he, the way he, John writes it, he writes rhythms which are completely against any beat. So... At any one point, you might have a, a structure going on which has something which is essentially this pulse, and then another thing going on which is something that pulse. So totally different, but written out in the same way. So it looks very complicated on state on page, but he actually, most of the time, if you, you just um, if you just hear it, you don't really recognise that. It's very very interesting. Um, one of the questions that is often asked is how you as the conductor. You're standing in the pit, you've got the musicians playing, you are making them do what you want them to do, but you've got these dancers who are doing what they want to do, what the choreographer wanted to do, and ultimately what you want them to do. You have an amazing amount of power. I do, yes. Well, (laughs) of course, I can never have too much power. Um, Yeah, and it it depends on the choreographer, it depends on the work. I mean, I talk, let's talk about these four world premieres. This, this, yeah. um, Francesca, uh, Yuri, uh, is, for various reasons, ended up choreographing it to a tape, um, mostly because we couldn't really get a pin. We didn't have enough pianists to put in the studio enough of the time to make it work for him. So uh, he choreographed to a tape, and he started choreographing to one tape, and I listened to it, and I said, but that's just, a lot of it is, in my humble opinion, not right. You know, the tempos are wrong, and this and that, and uh, so I gave him another tape. And he said, okay, well, I'll do the rest of it to that tape. And then, <laughs> so we have this sort of, uh, they actually rehearsed now to two splice tape, and, but then that caused a lot of difficulty when I come to play it, because Chekhov is, you heard the big tune, you can't just do that to it. So, and it's very difficult to recreate something like that. Uh, it's, uh, it's very hard indeed. And, and Yuri's movement is so intricate and so difficult that it's, it's understandable that the dancers get into a routine of it. And so when it's not quite what it was on the tape, it's not as easy as other choreographers to think, oh, yeah, well, just take time here or I'll make this a bit bigger. It's, it's not quite how it works. So it was, I was charged, really. Um, I only had two rehearsals with 
the, orchestra, uh, the stage and orchestra, the, the one before the, the dress rehearsal. And I just had to sort it out, you know, work it out for myself, which what I had to do against my, uh, well, not better nature, because it's all fine music, it's all great music, but against my uh, natural instinct, I should say, um, and have to fight that at times in order to make it okay for the dancers. Whereas uh, with Bo, for instance, with Mark, he never, well, he refuses to do anything to a tape. Mm-hmm. So we had a pianist, and Michael McGraw played it all, all the way mm-hmm. through. And it's always a living entity. And the way he choreographs is uh, it's very... He wants it to be different. He, he thinks it should be different. He do, he's, he's kind of... As long as it's within a framework, he doesn't want to hear it the same every time. So it's, it's uh, you know, that's very different. And then, well, we'll see with the, the new people coming. I mean, I've been in rehearsals early mm-hmm. on in the fall. That the John Adams piece is... is uh, uh, going to be set. It's set in such a way that they count. They don't really count it. So I'm hoping that they'll just listen to it and they'll be able to go with it. Uh, because you can't really count it. Because if you if you listen to one line, then it suddenly becomes a different line, and it goes half speeds or you know two thirds of speed at some point. You think, oh, I can't count that anymore. So Ashley just said, you know, we're just going to listen for that cue, and you're going to go and do that. And that'll be fun. That'll be fun. Yeah. And and, and then the other piece, uh, the Rachmaninoff. Ed Liang came and he also choreographed to, to tape because that's how he likes to do it. But I'm very much hoping when he comes back in a few weeks' time, he will allow me to just use the piano so that I can learn it with the dancers mm-hmm. and we can all learn it together and come up with a solution that works. Well, Rachmaninoff is pretty amazing music. And it's uh, say music. more, say more about this music. Well, you know, I did want to say because um, when Mary asked me to do this talk and. Um, and just going back to what Mary said before, is uh, do I do I influence people what they choreograph? Um, I'd say I've had very little success in ever ever persuading anybody. But there always was one piece in, that uh, I've always loved and always thought would be make a fantastic ballet, and I've never done it. So I used to peddle it to everybody, <laughs> and they no one took any notice of it. And then last summer, um, Ed. Um, came up to me with a few ideas for ballets and there, there were some problems with them. Actually, I, I'd say, I don't think that's a, such a good idea for whatever reason. Um, and he was a bit stumped, so I said, you know, I'm sorry. And uh, anyway, he said, it's, it's okay, I'll think of something. And then he rang me up two days later and said, oh, how about Rachmaninoff Symphonic Dances? Well, I just, so that was, I said, well, I didn't peddle it to you because I, g- I gave up. <laughs> but that's the one piece I want someone to do. So I was so happy when he chose it. It's, it's one of my, it is, just one of my most favorite pieces, for lots of reasons, not just because it's a great piece, but for nostalgia reasons as well. I'm going to play something, because uh, you, you will hear this, obviously, later on in the season, but uh, this is one of the great tunes of all time.
and so on. It goes on like that. Um, it was a piece um, when I was 16 years old. I was lucky enough to be a member of the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain, which is where I had some of my fundamental musical training. And uh, we played this Rachmaninoff. What's your instrument? I was a cellist. So I, was one, I wasn't playing on that record, but, uh, but I remember very distinctly, we rehearsed a lot. We had these two-week courses where we rehearsed one or two programs for two weeks. It was very intensive, and uh, we, we played this tune over and over and over again. I mean, it was so many times, just because that was the nature of, the, of where we, what we did, and yet we never stopped and rehearsed it. All this is a huge, long tune. We never stopped and rehearsed it, and I couldn't understand it, and yet it always changed. And we all did things together. There's hundreds of people in the, in the youth orchestra. And we all did the same, and I couldn't work it out. And then suddenly I had this epiphany, I suppose you would say. And I looked up, which is very rare for a musician to look up at the conductor. And I suddenly realized that he was conducting. He wasn't just beating time. He was playing us. It, for him, the orchestra was his piano, his violin, and it was everything. So with his stick, he was making all of us play together. And it was, I can still remember the exact moment when I thought, I want to have a go at that. I want to do that, because I think, well, I won't be any good, but I'd love to have a go, you know. <laughs> because what's, what better than, you know, playing one instrument than playing 100? Yeah, it was fantastic. So, and that was, that was when I first decided I wanted to conduct, and it was, uh, well, luckily it all worked out, but, uh, you know. So have you had a chance to see the piece in rehearsal? Uh, edge piece, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I have, yeah. You know, it's, it's, there's some great bits. There's some fantastic pas de deux. There's some really beautiful pas de deux. That, that tune is a really wonderful pas de deux. I think it's probably for YY and mm. somebody else, Damien, probably. I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. I would almost be scared that it, you take something that's that precious. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, that's true, actually. It. Well, uh, the other thing about what I've come to really know about ballet, is, especially working here, is you cannot tell until it gets on stage. You, you, you think, oh, that's, uh, uh, oh. And then the, the lights and the costumes and everything else, and you think, oh, I see why. You know, because the lighting will do something that you hadn't even occurred to you that, why are they dancing over there? Oh, I see. You know, but, you know, and you see the full finished article, but you see something in bare form, you think, oh, well, you know. And other times, actually, it works the other way. You think, that's fantastic. Oh. And then you look at it on stage, and it doesn't quite read out because it's too small for the stage or it's too big for the stage, whatever, all these things. So you can't really tell until you get to stage whether it's going to be great, So which is why I'm hanging off. I think there's some beautiful bits in it, and we'll see if it all comes together because that's the fantastic thing about San Francisco Ballets. We have these world premieres, and some work, some don't, and, we, and mostly they work, so we have to assume it's going to be a success. And just the music education of sitting through a season and being able to hear everything from Tchaikovsky, starting yeah, with the Nutcracker, yeah. to um, Minkus and Don Quixote, yeah. and everything in between. Yeah. Well, and we play, this is what's great about our orchestras, they're able to play pretty much anything you put in front mm -hmm. of them, you know, uh, all styles. Um, because if I was a symphonic conductor going around the world, I'd pull, you know, and I made Rachmaninoff my specialty. That's what I'd do, and I'd maybe do, you know, this and that. But here, I, I, I'm told to do Martin, you know, I'm told to do, I've got some Mozart to do this season, Hindemith, and I've got um, Mendelssohn. I haven't done a Mendelssohn symphony for ages, you know, and the Scotch symphony's coming. And it's a, it's a fantastic, wonderful piece. It's so happy, it's so, so buoyant. Um, yeah, I can't wait to do those sort of things. 
We've saved about seven minutes. Now, we're going to have to cut off exactly at 7 o'clock because Martin has to do the downbeat at 7.30. So um, we need to let Originally, him... actually, Carnival was going to be first, and I'm not conducting Carnival tonight, so I would have been okay. But the order got the changed. Got changed. So sorry about that. Okay. Well, anyways, but we might be able to have a few questions. I can't imagine that you don't have some questions. So um, we'll start here. Well, okay, the, the question is um, purely technical. There are pieces of music on the stands in the orchestra pit. Um, how is that managed? Is that bought? Is that rented? Is that in the library? Well, we have a big library. We have a full-time librarian. Um, each piece of music, uh, there's basically two categories of music. One which is in public domain and one which is still uh, the rights are owned by somebody. Um, you, you know, the publishing house or the composer. So... <coughs> Actually, the rules keep changing, but what it used to be was if the piece had been written, uh, the different rules in America as well. So usually, usually if they're written in the last 70 years, then the rights uh, are still held by someone. So we then pay royalties to the to the whoever owns those rights uh, for that piece. If it happens to be a piece of Tchaikovsky, it's all public domain. So we we tend to we just buy a set of parts. Um, and then we keep them and we play them. Some people allow us to keep sets of parts. Some people insist that we send the parts back to the publishing house. Uh, we try and keep our markings on it. Sometimes we might keep a, a photocopy of you know, a, a certain number of parts, so we have our markings to put back in the parts. You know, it's all different scenarios. But uh. That's really interesting. Thank, thank you for that question. Um, yes. question is, what's, um, when do you get to just slow it down or speed it up, I think is, or do you need to? <laughs> it's always working. Um, <coughs> the, the best way to describe it is, is uh, yes, yes, the music does slow and, it's, and it speeds down anyway. Because music is a living thing, just as dancers will pour at one speed one night, and they have an extra donut the next day, and they're a little heavier, <laughs> and they speed a little. Everything changes. It's a living art form. So the way I like to always, the best analogy I can think of that gives the idea of it, if you're driving a car, and you know the road is straight, you don't let go of the wheel, because you know that there's going to be bumps and bones on the road, and you, you're doing this all the time. You bend, you're steering slightly Whatever. And you might want to go 30 miles an hour, but if the person in front of you breaks, you slow down. So you're always adjusting. But you might, you might not slow down to zero, you might slow down to 29 in order to stop yourself going down to zero later on. So you're always trying to navigate the best road, the best route. Does that help? Yeah, very good. Um, yes. Oh, Question again about public domain. How, how, old, how old does that have to be? I'm not the best person to ask because I don't. My librarian deals with that. I end up, it's something to do with 70 years at the moment. But once Disney gets past 70 years, they go back to law courts and they get it all changed. So these things change all the time. In England, it used to be 50 years since the composer was dead. So in, depending on where you live and what time of day it is, it, it, 
it's, it's all different. It definitely varies. I do recall um, conventional wisdom in a smaller company was if a new piece was being done, oh, please, please, please choose a piece of music that's in the public domain so we don't have to pay. Yeah, we pay a lot of, we pay a lot of money in royalties, a lot. Um, on the other hand, if that can be budgeted, if you can find it, then you have the riches of contemporary work. Yeah, we do a lot of, we do a lot of new music, let alone just uh, work in the public domain. Um, I forget, we have, a, we have a very large budget for royalties. I mean, I think it's large. That's fabulous. Um, another question. Okay. That's a very good question. What music do I like to listen to in my off time? Um, I don't listen to a huge amount nowadays, to be honest. I listen to my daughter bang on the piano um, and let her sing Happy Birthday because she just learned that one. She's two. She's only two. So. Um, but I have to say, uh, if, I, if my Desert Island discs, you know, the ones I'd take forever would be things like Rachmaninoff and Tchaikovsky. It happens to be one of my favorite composers. But... Um, I've, because I live my life making the piece I'm conducting my favorite piece of all time, that I tend not to... I listen to music f for... not. I do get pleasure out of it, but I listen to so much music because I have to for other reasons as well that I don't... I do like sounds. I like watching television and, and you know, doing other things. We have time for one more question. I know you're all going to go to the ballet this evening and enjoy it threefold, twelvefold, for having learned so much about these pieces. Thank you, Martin, That's so much.